everyone. Once again, welcome to another weekly Yes And podcast. I'm your host, Travis Thomas, and uh, really excited for, for today's guest. Uh, February was a, was, a, was a crazy month. Uh, I was in Michigan for a week and then up in St. Louis for a week and Colorado for a week. So uh, I'm just getting home. I'm getting my bearings again. But while I was in St. Louis, I was speaking at an event. Uh, and there was another speaker there. It's always sad when uh, when you're the last speaker and someone gets up and speaks in front of you and you're like, well, there's no way I can top that story. And, uh, and today's guest is one of those gentlemen. His name is Michael Burke. He is the author of Waiting to Die, Running to Live. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. He's a coach. Uh, he's spoken all over the country. And uh, uh, I'm just honored that uh, he was willing to jump on the weekly yap with us here today uh, from St. Louis. Michael, how you doing today? I'm great. How's it going? Good, good, good. I know we're just kind of catching up. Uh, I, I've lived in St. Louis a couple of times, and Michael's in St. Louis, so it's, I'm always interested to hear how things are going through. And it sounds like maybe a tornado went through, so sending good wishes to everyone there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, again, uh, you know, we were at the, the ARET uh, event a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, when you speak at an event, you're usually so – it's easy to be in your head and you're thinking about, okay, what am I going to say, making sure that your message is going to be good. And then you started – I met you before you even spoke, and I'm like – and then you started sharing your story. I was like, holy cow, what a story this is. And so, so Brian, you're in your 40s now, correct? Uh, 47, just turned 47. 47, all right. Uh, uh, yet you were never supposed to live this long. So I, I know this is a big story, but 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 tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'll be as, as brief as possible to get the message through. So in 1970, I was born in January. By uh, six-month mark, I developed what can only be described as a, a relenting cough. And this cough went on for months and months, and the doctors couldn't figure it out. My parents had no idea to do what to do with it. I was in and out of the hospital with pneumonia a number of times. And then all of a sudden, uh, with about, well, I was about a year old, and I stopped gaining weight. Just all together, stopped gaining weight. And the doctor finally put it all together, and I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which at the time was the number one genetic killer of children, and there was not one single adult alive. Uh, matter of fact, there wasn't even any teenagers in St. Louis at the time. So this uh, diagnosis is pretty stiff. Um, yeah, yeah. So a huge battle was begun in my parents between hope and fear. Uh, you know, you're told your child is going to die before kindergarten. Because that's what the life expectancy was. Right. And, be and before that, he's going to suffer from just relentless lung infections complicated by starvation. And and that's what they were told when I was a year old. And so they get that diagnosis. Obviously, you're one, so you, you don't have a huge recollection of this at the time. Um, at, at what point, sort of at what point in your memory and your experience... Uh, do you even remember sort of being aware of this as, as you start to grow up? Yeah, it was uh, very, very apparent when I became aware. So once I started on some medicine and therapy as a child, uh, things turned around. Those lung infections went away for the most part, although I still coughed. Uh, I was a pretty skinny little guy, but I gained weight, you know, incrementally. 
played soccer and baseball, did all the good stuff that my buddies did. And then, I don't know, when I was about 13, they started putting us in the hospital. And they put us in the hospital for what's called a tune-up. And it's, it's just like a car tune-up. Our bodies, wherever they were in the progression of the disease, they wanted to give us the best shot. So go in the hospital, get a bunch of antibiotics, pump us full of food, and just monitor us. And that was the first time in my life I met other kids with my disease. Mm. And I was doing pretty good, but but they weren't. They had feeding tubes, and they coughed like crazy, and they were really sick. And we did these tune-ups all throughout high school and actually college, and uh, kids weren't coming back the next year. They just weren't returning. Right. And no, nobody said anything. No one helped me understand what was going on, but I noticed it. You know, I noticed how sick they were, and I noticed they weren't coming back. Yeah. And I just started asking bunches of questions, you know, those big questions that teenagers ask. Who am I? What do I want to be? Am I cool? Am I good looking? All that. Compounded by this death that I was surrounded by, I took over 10,000 pills a year at the time. I take 13,000 now. We have to do 500 hours of therapy uh, just to keep our lungs in shape and to gain weight. So all that was going on in my brain, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. So, so going back to being a child, and so you weren't even supposed to live until kindergarten, yet you, you, you surpassed that. And so uh, you shared there, there are these, these benchmarks all along. They're like, okay, well, he made it to here, but he's not going to live past here. And then you would make it to that, but he's not going to live past here. What was that like as a child, having that um, sort of doomsday prediction in front of you and sort of approaching that marker each time? Well, how, how did that impact you? How did you approach that? Yeah, so, you know, I didn't realize that uh, progression of life expectancy until about my 15th birthday okay. when, I, when I started discovering the disease, what it meant. And I read in a medical journal, because there was no internet at the time, <laughs> we were talking 1885, uh, that the life expectancy was 18. So I'm 15, yeah. I'm seeing all these sick kids, and my life expectancy is 18. And then when I turned 18 it was 20 and then when i turned 20 it was 22 and when i turned 22 it was 24 so you know the caretakers and my parents were taking great hope from that progression Mm -hmm. that increase in life expectancy but really it blinded me to possibilities because all i saw is i'm gonna die in two or three years because there's still nobody older than me total guinea pig and it was still a childhood disease only now are half of us even 18 years or older. Wow, yeah. So back then, it was, in my eyes, it was a death sentence. And, and so, again, so how, how, did, you, how did you process that? Uh, you know, being a, being a teenager, being a young adult, where, you know, most people are, are thinking about what the next 10 years are going to be, how they're going to find their, you know, their soulmate, you know, what kind of career they're going to be doing 10 years from now. And you're, you're not even sure about the next year or two. So, so what impact did that have on you on a day-to-day basis? Well, what it did is uh, um, I started building beliefs about that two-year life expectancy. And what it did is it made me pretty fearful about the future, actually. And day-to-day, it, you don't think it affects you, but um, I had four big fears. One, I'd be dead. 
Two, I was going to suffer. Three, how could I ever bring value to the world? Hmm. And four, what what girl's ever going to want to be with me? Because I I cough a lot and my belly's messed up, so I'm quite flatulent. And, you know, I just, it was almost certain suffering. So I'm building these beliefs around those this uh, two-year death sentence. And I'm just stuck in it all through high school. I thought, why try hard in high school? I'm never going to be alive to go to college. Why think about college? I'll never be an adult. Right. Why think about family? I just won't be around. So what that all leads to for me is, you know, I was fortunate to never um, want to end my life or, or dive into drugs. I just became real apathetic. Mm. I just simply didn't effort unless it was tremendous fun. Yeah. You know, even sports, if sports wasn't fun, I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. So it just led to a lot of apathy. Okay. Okay. And was there a point, um, or or when was the point rather, where you, you keep getting well? Okay, you didn't die yet. It's going to be a couple of years. Yep. No, you made it. You're going to be a couple more years. Was there? Was there a? What was the turning point where you're like, screw this, <laughs> screw yeah. this, screw this waiting to die thing? Yeah. There was a very clear turning point. And it was building up, though. You know, lots of times we don't just flip the switch and just all of a sudden say, well, you know, I got this and I'm going to do something different. It kind of builds. And I remember telling, well, I don't remember telling my father this, but he remembers it clearly. Uh, we were having a conversation about the future. I was 18 years old and I said, I'm not going to college. I'm going to be dead in two years. And my dad valued education hugely. <laughs> and he was very hopeful man. So he he just didn't want me to sit in this uh, mindset, and I had never expressed that to him before. And he said, bullshit, Michael, you're going to college, and by the way, you're going to do well. And it just snapped me out of this little funk. So I, I go to college, I graduate in four years, I do really good, I did really good. And then uh, right out of college, I uh, was offered a job, and I really didn't love the job, but you know, you, you got to do it well, and, and I wanted to do it well. And I just was learning I could do a great many things um, despite the disease. But where it finally triggered, where it finally triggered, where I was ready to live with the disease instead of trying to avoid it, mm. was very near my 30th birthday. I had just been promoted to director of sales for Omni Hotels. I was their youngest director of sales. I've been traveling the country, which is exactly what I wanted. And... Um, before I moved from Richmond, Virginia to Detroit, I was asked to give a speech at a CF fundraiser. So I was getting re-familiar with the disease, and, and I read my life expectancy. It was the first time I had really looked at it in a few years, and I just turned 30, and the life expectancy was 28. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was on the other side of that thing that I was so fearful of. And my four big beliefs were just shattered. I wasn't dead by any means. I was 30 and super healthy. I didn't suffer from the disease unless I didn't take the medicine and do the therapy. And, and that was just a stupid choice. Yeah. Um, with, with my face and with that body, I did pretty good with the ladies. <laughs> and, uh, and I was not a burden to anybody. I was the youngest director of sales. I was making really good money. I, I wasn't a burden, so I just had, that was the moment 
where I said, I'm never going to let this disease dictate my life in this negative way again. I can't, I can't avoid the disease, but I don't have to let it affect me so negatively. Yeah, what, what, what's that like? Because in, in a lot of ways, as you share that, I, I picture, you know, uh, uh, John Glenn walking on the moon. Like no one had ever, no one had ever been here before. You're walking in uncharted territory. And, yeah. and, and so to go, it's, it's almost like, it, it's almost from extreme to extreme to almost, to, from this complete sense of vulnerability to this total standpoint of, I did it. Like, like no one has ever gotten this far. So what was that like for you? It was uh, freeing. Like the bounds of the disease were let go. And um, it was also difficult because it was a whole new way of thinking. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't allow myself to do that anymore. And changing from that and really embracing this new way of thinking was hard and I ended up I had to change my career because uh, the business was just tearing my body up Mm -hmm. and all that travel and moving every year and uh, but I was I was ready for it Uh, but it was very very um, very motivating daily because I I really was ready I've heard it said being sick and tired of being sick and tired right and and that's kind of where you get to it wasn't it wasn't at rock bottom i was just tired <laughs> tired of thinking that way right and and so once you hit that it is freeing it's like this burden comes off of you and then it it uh the the life sentence blinded me to real opportunity in life career opportunity was one thing but life opportunity was what i was missing and being free from that view, I just started thinking real possibilities for my life. And, and you didn't really you really you really didn't start thinking small. So, so no. What what's that leap? What's that leap that you took? Well, um, outliving that life expectancy, you know, I just started thinking I've done some pretty cool stuff. I I went to college when I really really had to work hard and I did well at it, and that was. That was great. And then I had this very successful career for the first four years of my life, and and that was a little stone moved. And then uh, this hotel thing, I'm like, I can do a lot of big stuff. So one of the therapies for cystic fibrosis is, is to exercise, particularly running, because running both with the heavy breathing and the pounding, it makes you cough. And, and with cystic fibrosis, the therapy is to cough this junk that's in our lungs and get it out. Right. And running did that. Um, but, you know, I was like, well, I, you know, running three days a week, three miles a day, that's not much. It's kind of boring. I need something big, man. So uh, a friend of mine in Colorado when I was living out there, she was traveling the country running marathons. She's going all over North America running marathons. I thought... If Moose can do that, why can't I do that? <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to run a marathon with this Ford Pinto of a body. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So so so, so, so walk us, actually, a bad, bad use of words, but uh, walk us through uh, the decision to run your first marathon and then the actual process 
of training and, and building up to the marathon and then actually running the marathon? What was going on in your world? What was going on in your head? So, you know, I, I left that hotel business. I moved back home. I thought, man, I really need to take charge of this disease. I need steady doctor's care. So I, I left the career, I, and I, of course I got a good job, and it was challenging, but it didn't require the hours. So I started running, and, and man, I started running a lot. I bought a book about running marathons, Hal Higdon, and I subscribed to Runner's World, thought I knew everything about running marathons. And I actually started stacking on miles pretty quickly. Now, there's a few challenges that runners have, and, and their obsessions are lung capacity, nutrition, and electrolyte balance. Well, by the time I made this decision, this bell went off in my head, uh, the disease had already taken 20% of my lungs. Mm. So I was operating on an 80% lung capacity. Uh, I don't digest one nutrient of food without 13,000 pills a year. So my body doesn't process food. And then I actually lose electrolytes at alarming rates as a result of the disease. So my body is truly handicapped to be an endurance athlete, but I didn't care. I was, I was hell-bent on doing this thing. So as I'm stacking on mileage, I, I am... I, the therapy is working. I'm coughing. I'm getting the stuff up. And sometimes I would cough so hard and so uncontrollably, I would just throw up on my shoes. It just, that's the way it was for a while. And it was frustrating at first, but then I thought, that stuff is out of my lungs. That stuff is gone. It won't be there tomorrow. I'll have a better run. And as my belly started getting right and I started digesting food better and eating better food, I started gaining weight. I gained 10 pounds running 50 miles a week. And it was because I just was super focused on something real positive in my life. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I started stacking on big mileage, 8 miles, 10, 13, 16, 18. And uh, I had a few challenges, you know, getting up into that big mileage but ended up running my first marathon and did that in four hours and 11 minutes which was four seconds off my goal time wow 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 yeah. all right so you cross that finish line for the first time you know i i feel like there's two options there's one which is i can't believe i did that but i did it and i'm never running again <laughs> that's not the reaction you had though what, what's your reaction no man um well, there's a picture of me crossing the finish line, and what's interesting about the my part in the picture is I'm just looking at my watch, um, looking to see what my time was. Super matter of fact. I mean, this was a huge accomplishment, yeah. and I'm looking at my watch like every stupid runner, right? Uh, what, what's my splits? What's my time? Uh, I expected to do well, because I had put in... 18 weeks of obsessive training, eating, I expected to do well. Um, what really happened that day was was very special in my life. In that picture of me crossing the finish line, there's a woman running behind me. Her arms are raised up in the air, and she's got this huge smile. And I had met that woman not 10 hours before. She was pretty much a complete stranger, but I told her my story, and this was a time in my life where I didn't share. I certainly wasn't ever going to write a book about it. 
I didn't want to be different. I, I just, that is my business. But I told her. And I thought, look at, look at that woman. It's complete, I just bought into my story. She was part of my community, right? She got what I was trying to do. And also that day, my father had driven down to Tulsa with me. And uh, he went out on the course to, to watch me. And, you know, Dad would talk to the wall if, if it would talk back. And he struck <laughs> up a conversation with a woman out on the course. And she said, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm here watching my son run the marathon. He runs for health purposes. And she's like, oh, well, well, why is that? And he said, well, she, uh, he has cystic fibrosis. And this woman started crying uncontrollably. And she had said, I have never heard of anybody living at, well, I was 32 at the time, uh, alive that long, and most certainly not running marathons. Her two grandchildren had CF. Oh, wow. And my dad was telling me the story on the drive home, and it that also finally clicked. So my obsession came from, man, I just did something really hard, and it was fun doing it, and it was fun experiencing not only the daily routine of doing something, but that big lift you get finishing. And then I saw this great purpose to this running, to my life with the disease. I thought, wow, man, look what I look what my journey did for that lady who ran behind me. And look what my journey did for the lady my dad met. And it really changed my whole perspective on the disease. That's that's uh, that's fantastic. You know, I mean, you you mentioned you mentioned purpose. You know, I've, my my three pillars with Livia Sand are purpose, authenticity. You know, which leads to life transforming collaboration and and th- this this sense of purpose that you felt as a result of that. And for those of you who are listening, obviously this is a podcast, but uh, um, Michael and I are recording this via uh, via FaceTime, and I can see some medals hanging on the wall behind you, Michael. So this wasn't the only marathon that you decided to run. So what's, what's the last 15 years been like for you as a runner? So I did get obsessed, and um, I ran nine full marathons mm. in that time frame. Um, I also became an endurance coach for a training program. So in that coaching, I've run 20 half marathons and coached a couple hundred runners. When all that got a little boring, I uh, thought I think I thought I could do an Ironman. So I attempted a half Ironman uh, on the hottest day <laughs> you could get in Indiana, in the cornfields of Muncie, Indiana. Uh, and I got four miles into the run. And I just, I, I nearly passed out. I was yeah. a step away from a heat stroke. Um, and then, you know, I did some Olympic distance triathlons, some sprints. And, you know, my body was not doing great, you know, in 2015. Just couldn't shake a cough. Something was going on. And, you know, I was having a tough time with the disease. You know, it's a progressive disease. And, you know, I thought, I can't run like I used to. I can't do the Ironman. But what can I do? And, and I said, I can walk. So that year, I walked, hiked 100 miles on the Ozark Trail Mm. uh, with a 30-pound backpack, purifying my water out on the trail, you know, tent sleeping for a week. And, you know, so this year I'm feeling much better. 
So I'm training for uh, a few triathlons, and we're going to do that big hike again, but this time we're going for 200 miles. Oh, wow. So, okay, so to answer the question, for the last 15 years, you've been phoning it in. Good, good. That's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so there, there's, there's a huge, there's, there's a huge component to all of this. And you mentioned your dad coming to see you run that first marathon in Tulsa. And I just keep thinking about your parents during this experience. What was that like for him to see his son, who wasn't even supposed to live to first grade, and then having to overcome every other prediction along the way? What was that like for him? to see you sort of performing at this high level uh, at this stage in your life? Well, Dad was the most hopeful guy I know. And they struggled a little bit when I was real little. I was a sick, sick little dude. And they had to overcome some of their fear, and they did. And then, you know, as I started moving around the country, that was fearful for them. And But... I just kept reinforcing, I'm doing okay, I'm taking care of myself, I'm doing my life. And I helped them break break free of more and more of their fear. We kind of did this together. And they, of course, were incredibly proud to watch me just take this on and then come out of my shell and write a book. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer last year. And... I never, I could not imagine, I just thought his hopefulness was fake. I was like waiting for this thing to hit him, broadside him, you know, and he never, never gave up. He never was, uh, I I don't, I I just don't know how to explain it. Mm. And on his deathbed, because he died two days ago last year, he provided hope for the whole family. You know, he knew. He had confidence where he was going in the next world, and he his fight till the very end was incredibly inspirational. And I remember, so he's diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, and it spread to his bones and his lymph nodes and his brain. It was everywhere. And the the nurse said, "Jack, I I can't believe <clears throat> you're you're not complaining about any of this." He says, "Well, my son has cystic fibrosis." I can't complain. Wow. He's been fighting his whole life. And I'd never heard him say anything like that before, so it was really neat that we could be there for each other. Right? He was there for me as a, a child and a young man and in my twenties and, and then I got to be there with him that the moment he died I was in the room with him and um it was pretty neat. Wow, what what a, what an inspiring example that is! Um, and so, moving forward, uh, Michael, you you wrote the book uh, "Waiting to Die, Running to Live," which is a fantastic title. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. That's 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 going to the top of my list for sure. Uh, tell us about that process, um, the desire to write the book, and what and what that's been like since. Yeah. So. As I started sharing my story with the runners I was coaching, because I had to tell them, hey, you run some miles with Mike. I'm going to be coughing, and yeah, yeah, I'm a stinky, loud runner. <laughs> so uh, I can't get you sick, but this is what's going on. And I was finding that just there's a lot of folks that were attracted to that story, and the more I shared it, the more inspiration they got. 
So I finally um, wrote the book because my community suffers a lot. And people with a chronic illness suffer a lot. And they don't want to talk about it, and they won't show it. They're so brave. They're so such a fighting spirit. But they need, they need encouragement in a specific way. So what I, I wrote the book, and I didn't really know it at the time, but it's about this thing called a mindset. And, and if you read Dr. Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, yeah. she's basically saying our beliefs dictate all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our actions. And so the title of the book um, is about the two mindsets I carried living with a chronic illness. One, I w- was waiting for that gunshot to go off with all those life expectancies, and I was letting it affect my beliefs down to the core in a negative way and then the running to live was a whole different half of my life where I was building new beliefs and they obviously fueled the greatest things in my life um, you know that I, I found great purpose and meaning and joy and I've been married 11 years and she's in the fight with me and I've got all I have to do is say, hey, guys, I'm not feeling well. And the emails and the Facebook, everything comes pouring in for support. And I only could get that from sharing my story. If I never shared my story, people wouldn't know that I kind of need some encouragement every once in a while. Uh, so I really encourage folks to share their story in an up- uplifting way because it, it makes you magnetic. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I could share my story in a very sad way and might have a few people brave enough to stick around, but I've learned how to share my story in a very real and uplifting way. And man, when you fight hard, people, they want to be around you and they want to help you. You know, not not everybody, but I found the vast majority of people yeah love a fighter yeah they love a fighter and it doesn't have to be chronic illness uh the way we approach our businesses the way we approach our family life it's all that because we all have some little challenge or some big challenge somewhere and if we run away from it in fear it just festers and grows and mutates but if we decide to take it head on well then now we got something yeah, and, and you mentioned, obviously, mentioning Carol Dweck and uh, uh, the growth mindset and the fixed mindsets. Um, I often talk about the victor versus the victim mindsets. And then, yes. and then my, my message with the yes and, you know, that yes and mindset, that, that ability to accept sort of accept the facts of what, it, of what are happening, um, but without being a victim to them. So accept that, yeah, this is what's in front of me saying yes to it, yes, this is what's in front of me, but that and, going back to your purpose again, where, where you bring a sense of, all right, how would I respond to the situation in front of me if I were on purpose? That's uh, right. And you went out and ran a few damn marathons as a result. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you've been doing that over and over and over again uh, your entire life. Um, when you think about mindset um, uh, and not obviously having the language of the growth and fixed mindset as a kid, uh, are, are there one or two ideas or principles that that you reflect back on as a child that you thought, yeah, this is that that was an idea or a concept that really helped me over the years? 
Yeah, there's there's four that I found that are uh, through my story and really anybody I talk to who's overcome. Uh, the first is to be internally directed versus externally directed. Mm. I let an outside thing dictate my beliefs. Uh, at some point, I turned that around and said, I don't care what the disease is doing. I'm going to live my life the way that I get the most out of my life. Uh, the, the next thing is to embrace challenges and not to avoid them. Uh, I, I said it a minute ago, but if you don't, Really go beyond acceptance of your challenges. Like, get your arms around it. Embrace it. Like, hug it. And, and when you do that, you'll understand it, and you'll understand what you need to do with it. You know, when you develop a plan, and then you adapt, and, and all that is embracing challenges. Uh, the, the third thing is to live with a purpose. And this isn't, this sounds really hard, and, and you know people make it sound so hard. But it's not. Purpose is just a higher order goal. Mm -hmm. So what's the goal that gets you super excited, that would drive you to wake up early and run in the snow, in the heat, in the rain, right? What, what's, right? That's what drove me to run. What's the thing that's driving you to do the difficult thing? And that's not mysterious. You can find that out quickly. And then the final thing is have a community versus going at it alone. I, I am a huge proponent of self-reliance and i'll tell you this though when you have community even if it's a community of one a mentor you will go so much faster you'll do it with more confidence more resilience and uh less self-doubt less drama um so that's it those are my four cornerstones no, I love it. I love it. Now, and Michael, now right now you obviously you're a, you're a speaker. Uh, you're doing as much speaking as possible, but you have moved into coaching as well. And so, tell us about uh, that desire to to coach, that motivation to coach, and and uh, and and how you have found yourself helping others. Yeah, um, I'd been looking to write this book. People were encouraging me, and I just didn't know. And then a really good friend within my community, um, she died. She died making all the same mistakes that I made at her age. Mm -hmm. So she's she was in her 20s. And I didn't have the tools to really help her. Uh, I had an encouraging story, but she needed she needed more. And so with that inspiration, I thought, i got to learn more. i got to learn more about how our brain works, how motivation works, how purpose works, you know, how all these things work so I can help others. And, and I found how to do that. And what's interesting is, again, by sharing my story, people are connected, right? They connect with me, and they feel safe with me. And because I'm vulnerable with them, that allows them to be vulnerable with me. So I'm in a unique spot because I've been through the ringer, if you will, and and have made good from that ringer to help folks. And, you know, I love helping folks with chronic illnesses because it's a tough road. But as I share my story to wider audiences, it, it's, it's no different than at work when you're just grinding through work because your boss is a 
piece of work. <laughs> and the company doesn't always do stuff that you really love, and, and it's just tough. But there's a way to get above that grind, and, and what I found is that that a good coach, whether it's me or someone else, can help you get focused on the the good productive stuff. And even if you're not loving your boss, even if you're not loving the tasks of your work, you can do them really well because that's what matters is your effort. It doesn't matter what the boss is doing or what the company's doing. It your journey is about making your life count. And and that's what I really like helping people do. Fantastic. Michael, how can people get a hold of you? Well, uh, my website is www.michaelpatrickburke.com. It wouldn't just be simply Michael Burke, but there's a couple of national speakers, uh, a weightlifter and an attorney that have that name. <laughs> I so actually, Michael, I, I found the attorney. I was looking, I was like, oh, you, that, yeah, I did find it. I'm like, that's not, that's yeah. not the Michael Burke I'm talking to. No, no. So it's michaelpatrickburke.com. Uh, hit me on Facebook and LinkedIn. I share some, you know, lots of thoughts in those places. You know, I get to meet incredible people like yourself, and I get to share my interactions with those people because people are, are freaking inspiring, and <laughs> and I want to share that. Uh, well, uh, I believe that the middle name makes makes your makes you sound so much more prestigious, anyways, Michael. So I think I think it was the blessing. It was the blessing in disguise. Well, can I tell you something about the middle name? Yeah. So I introduced myself as Michael Patrick Burke. Uh, one, so they don't hear Mark Burke. You know, don't get my name wrong. <laughs> but then I always say, "Hey, listen, only serial killers use all three of their names." <laughs> but I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> there you go. That's that's another that's another bullet for your resume right there. Yeah, yeah, right. Not a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> well, the book is uh, is waiting to die, running to live. And, uh, and Michael, just the short time I've got to uh, spend time with you in St. Louis and then here on the podcast, um, uh, such an honor, such an inspiring story, and uh, I can't wait to uh, connect with you again in the future. Yeah, same here. Awesome. And thanks for being on uh, the Weekly Yap. Yeah, loved meeting you at the, the event the other week, and real honored to, to be on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Baby, the trees are gone. I feel my heart stop beating too much.